The Lord be with you. Bless the Lord who forgives all our sins. God's mercy endures forever. Dear friends, we greet you here in the nave of Marsh Chapel, whether you are here present with us, listening live over the radio at WBUR 90.9 FM, or listening at internet signals at WBUR.org, or listening later to the podcast at bu.edu slash chapel. We welcome to the pulpit this morning the former Dean of Marsh Chapel, the Reverend Dr. Robert Cummings Neville. He is standing in for Dean Hill this week, who is across the river preaching to the heathen at Harvard. Let us stand as we are able in the praise of God.
Let us pray. Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities which may happen to the body, and from all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. We turn in our service to a moment of repentance and reflection, to a moment of contrition and compunction. In this season of Lent, we turn from a usually meditative moment to a moment of greater intensity as we consider our brokenness, the brokenness of our lives, of the life of the world. And our choir sings an amplified version of our lament this morning, amplified in length, amplified in volume, to give voice to our greater sense of brokenness in this Lenten season. Let us attend.
Dearly beloved, if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from the book of Exodus, chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages, as the Lord commanded. They camped at Repidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. So Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? The word of the Lord. Please join me in reading responsibly, responsibly the 95th Psalm with the antiphon. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains also. also. The sea is his, for he made it and the dry land which his hands have formed. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. O that today you would listen to his voice. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness. When your ancestors tested me and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they do not regard my ways. Therefore, in my anger I swore, they shall not enter my rest. Lord, Lord. 
now please rise as you are able for the reading of the gospel and the singing of the Gloria Patri. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John, chapter 4, verses 5 through 42. Glory, Glory to you, O Lord. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water, gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. 
But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say, Four months more, then comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Now many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I had ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world, the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. I thank Dean Hill for the privilege of sharing as a preacher in our Lenten observance today. It's good to be back in this pulpit. Dean Hill wants us to think through Lent with the eyes of John Calvin, whose theology is not always completely in accord with the Wesleyan tradition of Marsh Chapel. Our texts for today illustrate some of the principal issues of Calvin's theology. God is imagined in many ways in the Bible, and Calvin picks up on most of them, from the most anthropomorphic to the most sublime. Our Exodus text, that's the shorter one, is from the saga of the Israelites' flight from Egypt to take possession of Canaan, which they viewed centuries later when composing these texts as God's promised land for them. The relation between God and the Israelites was not a happy one, as they told it. God did not consult them about their departure from Egypt. And you remember the desperate flight in front of the Egyptian army that God miraculously destroyed at the Sea of Reeds, or the Red Sea. This hair-raising escape was enough to make them nervous, especially since they had stolen all the goods they could from the Egyptians at God's command, they reported. 
and now had great herds of animals that needed to be fed and watered. Shortly before the incident in our text, the Israelite company had run out of food, and the people angrily asked Moses why he had led them away from the flesh pots of Egypt, that is, the diet of meat and a plenitude of bread, to die of hunger in the wilderness. That's when God sent the manna from heaven, a nourishing special condensation of dew. But traveling on, they ran out of water and complained to Moses again. God was royally provoked, but stood on the rock which Moses struck with his staff and water poured out, saving the people. This satisfied their literal thirst and that of their flocks. But God was indeed provoked by their lack of faith in his providence and their complaint that they should never have left Egypt in the first place. And so we know from our responsive reading, the 95th Psalm, that God therefore determined that they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years until all the adults who had complained about thirst would have died. That included Aaron and Moses. Only afterward were the Israelites allowed into Canaan, according to their telling. The image of God here is plainly primitive. We tend to read the later image of God as love back through those parts of the Hebrew Bible. The practice of giving a spiritual reconstruction of the Bible based on the theological principle that God is love was common in Christianity from the earliest times up to the Reformation. Those stories of God's pettiness and genocidal ways were construed to be allegorical expressions of something else, something consistent with an orthodox Christian theology of God's perfect mercy, justice, and benevolence. But this was, you know, in fact, to be inattentive to what the Bible says. The reformers, Calvin as well as Luther, said our theology should be based on a careful reading of the Bible, not the other way around where the reading of the Bible is based on a preconceived theology. Read straight, God in Exodus is arbitrary in choosing the Israelites over the Egyptians and Canaanites and is jealous of the Israelites' loyalty, which was shaky. God is depicted as one deity among others who wanted to prove his superiority to the Egyptian gods and later to the Canaanite ones. To prove this, God hardened Pharaoh's heart so as not to let the Israelites go until after God had killed all the firstborn of the Egyptians. <clears throat> this was genocide of untold numbers of innocents. But it's hardly worse than God killing off nearly all the animals and people on earth at the time of Noah. Read straight, the God of these stories is a primitive tribal deity whose crimes against the humanity of everyone except the Israelite 
tribal in-group are atrocities. He was even tough on the in-group, as I say, requiring the deaths of all those who complained before letting them enter the promised land. Later, Jewish and Christian interpreters had to find ways of taking these stories to be not true, literally, but symbolic of something closer to the God of justice, mercy, and love. There's a story that I've heard from the Jewish Talmud, for instance, about the angels and deities in heaven having a party after the drowning of the Egyptian army and the rescue of the Israelites at the Sea of Reeds. But they notice God standing off on the side, weeping. Why are you not rejoicing at the salvation of your people Israel, they asked him. I am weeping for my people Egypt, God replied. For all of his biblicism, Calvin did not escape imposing his own consistent Christian theology on the Bible. For instance, he was a super monotheist, whereas much of the Hebrew Bible is polytheistic. Calvin has a lesson for us here, however. Realistically, the world is not balanced and just. Some people are rich and others poor. Some nations are favored, at least for a while, and others are swept aside. Some people move easily into a life of general benevolence with only minor setbacks, while others damn themselves again and again despite a heartfelt will not to do so. Calvin's God is arbitrary, creating a world where some are saved and others are damned. The imbalance in the world must be the result of divine creation, said Calvin, because God is sovereign and somehow everything that happens, even the bad stuff, is the result of the divine will. Perhaps we do not like this, and we want to attribute a generous, loving spirit to God. But then given the realities of unequal life, God would have to be blind or inept or not personal at all, or at least not sovereign. Calvin says, do not close your eyes to the shocking inequalities and injustices of the world and assume that God is really behind the scenes trying without much success to make it right. Life sometimes runs out of water. God supplies the water sometimes as at Rephidim and it often comes at a great price death before the promised land. Sometimes God's water is a deadly flood, as the Egyptian army discovered. God is wild, New Calvin. Now, <clears throat> you understand Calvin and I are not supposed to be talking this way. We are supposed to deflect attention away from the primitive God to the spiritualization of the metaphor of thirst. We are spiritually thirsty 
and God can satisfy this spiritual thirst. This is the background orientation for the text from John's Gospel. That was the long one. Jesus turns his own human thirst at the well into a spiritual interpretation of the thirst of the others for the water of life. The story of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman is chock full of boundary-crossing elements, talking with a Samaritan, talking with a woman, describing her dubious sex life without moral judgment, and offering her the water of life when he had originally only asked for a drink from the well for himself. I presume now that you all have heard a multitude of sermons based on this text about how we have a spiritual thirst that is far more important than physical thirst. Jump from John 4 to John 6 and you will find Jesus claiming to be the bread of heaven, quenching a spiritual hunger that he contrasted with the mere physical hunger satisfied with manna from heaven. You all know how to think about the spiritual life in terms of the metaphors of thirst and hunger. And, and you all have my permission to rehearse in your mind's ear what you would say if you get bored with the rest of what I'm going to say. Calvin's greatest genius was to see that religion is about God more than about us. For Luther and for most other Christian theologians, religion mainly is about our salvation, including God's role in it through Jesus. Calvin paid lip service to the salvation problem and wrote many pages about how Jesus is our savior. But the main intentionality of his vision was focused on God. <clears throat> he had the largest conception of God in Western history. For him, God is unmeasurable, glorious beyond imagination, so radiant in beauty that of course God is sovereign. Nothing can compare with God. <clears throat> so what Calvin would lift up today from the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman is Jesus' shocking dismissal of the tribal and religious differences between the Jews and Samaritans. <clears throat> Forget about whether one should worship in Jerusalem or on the Samaritan mountain. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. Jesus does not dismiss cultic differences and says the Jews know whom they worship, whereas the Samaritans do not. But he relativized cultic differences. Real worship is a spiritual matter that should not be limited to cult. Calvin would read John 4 as testifying to the transcendent sovereignty of God. Just glimpse God and you are blown away. Worship in spirit 
and truth is something that can only be approximated from a cultic base. Uh, Of course, this is unmanageable theophany. It seems we need to domesticate conceptions of God for them to be useful. So Calvin then turned to the Bible for finite things to say about this infinite and sovereign God. He tried to make out a consistent set of biblical affirmations about God and about commandments for human life. Like his symbolically interpreting predecessors, he was reading in more than he was reading out. But he assembled a rather detailed special interpretation of what the Bible is supposed to mean that has organized his reformed tradition ever since. Because we cannot live up to God's beauty in creation, human beings are utterly depraved, Calvin said. Now, this is not a politically correct position today. Most of us take offense at that part of Calvinism. Even worse, by subordinating the project of human salvation to the transcendently beautiful glory of God, awkward consequences such as predestination of some to salvation and others to damnation have followed ever since Calvin's Geneva days. In the Synod of Dort, at the beginning of the 17th century, the Calvinist divines had to decide whether God offers salvation to anyone with the free will to take it up, or whether God determines in advance whether you are saved regardless of what you think you choose. The former group, led by Arminius, was followed by the Methodists, who continue to believe in free will. The latter group won out at the council, and so the Reformed people, that is, the Presbyterians among us, are supposed to believe in total predestination. This put subsequent Calvinists in something of a panic to discover whether they themselves were predestined for salvation or damnation. For Calvin, all of these sometimes awkward consequences were not half as important as acknowledging the sovereign majesty and beauty of God. This transcendent, beautiful sovereignty of the infinite creator cannot be described in words. Some theologians had said that God is the fullness of reality that is whittled down into finite form to create the world. Calvin said, yes, but more, God's creation cannot be understood as the domestication of divinity. It is the holy new creation of the world that embodies the divine beauty. Everything in creation is good, if you could but see it with God's eye. The swell of the ocean, the transience of the sunrise, the special thisness of each bird chirping in the bush, the vastness of the cosmos, the remote radiant heat of the Big Bang, the supernovas destroying worlds 
the floodings of the coastal people, the parchings of the desert, the wars for dominance, the numbing poverty of our economic system, the blighted lives of the oppressed, the sick with poor care, the dying on our doorsteps, our own deaths coming any time, all, all bespeak the strange beauty of God. What a horrible thing to say, we think. Moral protests abound against Calvin's vision, and Calvinists themselves have been at the forefront of movements to relieve suffering and to transform the world to a more nearly just comportment. But in a profound sense, perhaps only glimpsed from the corner of the eye, the Calvinist vision says, sit down and shut up. It's not about you. It's about God. May I whisper softly, Calvin had it right in the long run? No one can bear this stark vision of divine glory for long. So think back to the human side, as Calvin suggested at the beginning of his institutes. For what do we truly hunger and thirst? Forget about the metaphor that we are spiritually empty vessels longing to be filled with divine substance. Our ordinary condition is to be spiritually filled with mediocre satisfactions. The ordinary metaphors of thirst for God's living water can too easily be turned to consumerism. We are needy, so we think of God as the resource to fill our needs. Calvin blows this off. Forget human needs. Look to God's glory. This will create a need for satisfaction you had never imagined. Look to God's beauty. You will be drawn with an infinite passion that will strangely show you beauty in life's smallest details and worst horrors. Look to God's sovereignty, and you will develop a thirst beyond your parchest history, a thirst deeper than any moral plumb line, a thirst that leaps over any water brook for which you had panted, a thirst that forgets your proximately valid priorities, a thirst that brings us up short to gape without guile at God's glory in the thises of creation. Calvin dares us to look at God through the corner of the eye, through thick filters prepared for eclipses, and to be blown away. Although Calvin, in fact, gave all sorts of suggestions about Lent and the moral life, suggestions that have their place, his fundamental message was, forget about it. Ultimately, we are not important enough to worry about. So, you need more discipline. Okay, get a program. So, you need to practice forgiveness. Okay, get on with it. So, you need to confess. Oh, duh, yes, yes. 
we know you are sorry and will do better next time, or not. For the glorious God in whom we live, it does not make much difference. Forget yourself. Forget whether you are saved or damned. Forget for the moment the need to fix the world. Instead, look to God whose beauty will create in you, create in you a thirst of inhuman proportions. God beauties forth in all creation. Beauty elicits the thirst, and the more you crave, the closer you come to God. Calvin knew God does not satisfy thirst. God does not satisfy thirst. God increases the craving. The whole creation is God's living water. The more we smell that water, the thirstier we become for God. Forget satisfying the thirst. Intensify it. God's immense, transcendent, and imminent beauty calls forth the deepest thirst that unites us to God. So, flee from spiritual satisfaction. It's not about you. Increase your thirst. It's about God. Calvin understood something, didn't he? Amen.
We now come to the time in our service when we turn our hearts and minds to prayer and lift up our lives and ourselves to God. We invite you to assume an attitude and posture of prayer by either remain, remaining seated, standing, kneeling, or coming to the communion rail as we sing together our call to prayer. Lead me, Lord. Sovereign God, on this beautiful weekend, we can easily gaze upon your universe and be overwhelmed by its tremendous beauty that serves as a mirror for your absolute beauty. We admit that we do not always live our lives as the image bearers that you created us to be. We have hurt the ones we love. When we meet strangers from other traditions at the well, we fail to recognize and respect them. We have ignored and stifled the cries of the sick, the poor, the oppressed, and the suffering. For these are spoken and unspoken faults, we ask your forgiveness. Lord, we ask that you would help us heal wounds we've caused and rebuild bridges we've burned. In our daily lives, we see the blessings which constantly spill over from you, and we offer you praise and thanks for them. May we use those blessings, both material and immaterial, in service to you, bringing water to your world. We ask that you would continue to work in our hearts to sanctify and perfect them, so that doing your will might be the food and water that drives our words, thoughts, and deeds. May they testify to your eternal majesty. And now, with the confidence of children of God, we are bold to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
peace of the Lord be always with you. We welcome you once again to the Nave of Marsh Chapel this slightly more spring Sunday. Uh, we hope you'll take a moment to join in our practice of friendship by putting your name and contact information on the red books found on the um, center aisle of each pew so that we can help to get to know you better, help you get to know one another better. We have a few announcements this week for further exploration and friendship that uh, we hope will help you to find a home at Marsh. Um, the first is that next Sunday is the Dean's Choice Hymn Sing. It will be at the Kiskinen Deconing Residence, and you can find their contact information and RSVP with the information printed in the bulletin. Um, that'll be at 1 p.m. following the service. Um, you can also order your lilies using the bulletin insert. Um, they are due April 6th, um, and we can receive those at the Marsh Chapel office. Next Sunday, um, we will also have Mitzvah Day. We are partnering with the Hillel House um, at BU. Uh, every semester, they have a service day, and they have invited us to be a large part of that next Sunday. Um, some service events are as short as an hour, some can go all day, so um, see me afterward if you'd like to sign up to be a part of service before or after the service um, here and join in that fellowship um, and interfaith opportunity. Finally, um, if you'd like to take on a new spiritual practice or perhaps you'd just like some entertainment, we will have an intramural broom ball game um, at 10, 15 p.m. this Tuesday at Walter Brown Arena. You can see Soren Hessler. Uh, for other upcoming services and activities, we encourage you to keep an eye on the Marsh Chapel website, our Facebook, and our Twitter, where you can find an opportunity uh, to plug into multiple events we have going on around here. Now, walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
Dear God, spirit of love and life, we thank you for the opportunity to come together today. As we worship here in prayer and song and silence, we are grateful for the ways you bless our lives and for our ability to share those blessings with others. Particularly, we give thanks for the faith and love and connection we feel in this holy place. We pray that the gifts given today serve to sustain the ministry of this beloved community and to bless our local community and the world. For these gifts and for all that is our lives, we pray. Amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you without blemish before the presence of his glory with rejoicing to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all times and now and forever. Amen. 